0: To uh, Revelation chapter 18. I, um, did you guys? We... Yeah? All right. Um, I just want to, again, encourage you to, uh, at very least, attend the first 20 minutes of Sunday school. Uh, I guess if I were asked, you know, observing the kind of uh, theological climate that we're living in, um, what would be one of the top ten things I'd want to see on the list of at least people who God has called me to minister to, and that would be to be well catechized. And uh, I think there is a, a shortage of that in our kind of Western evangelical landscape to to understand what, historically, the teachers God has raised up, believe the Bible taught regarding our faith and practice, and you know that you call that being catechized, understanding the confessions of the faith, the catechisms of the faith and, and what have you. So um, again, I strongly encourage you to, to at least come for the first 20 minutes of that as we take small bites of our, of our catechism and our confession. Also, before I read this, uh, and we're going to cover a lot of ground today as we have the last few weeks, you know, I, I realize the Revelation is a very meaty book, you know, I mean, there's just a lot to it, it's very big picture oriented, and, um, but this, uh, I, you know, I found out this last week that a, um, one of my former teammates in college had a son who passed passed away, I don't, I didn't know how he passed away, so I started kind of, um Searching, right, you know, the Internet, you know, we're still Facebook friends and all this stuff. And, and I came upon, um, uh, as I was looking at his material, this young girl, probably, I'm guessing, in her early 20s. And she was a friend of my, my buddy's son. And um, she was sharing, and I started watching, and she was sharing about how my buddy's son had evangelized her. And it was very ministerial. It was very tender. It was, um, you know, she was saying that, you know, um, that he had said, you know, what you need to understand is there is a God in heaven, and He's opening His arms to you, and He's calling you to come into His arms. I mean, it was, it was very tender, right? I mean, we see places in the Bible where God presents Himself that way, as kind of a spouse, right? As somebody who's um, seeking the affection. Of of the lost, and I feel like sometimes in reformed circles, we lose that tenderness a little bit. It's a, we're a little stiff, you know, and, and biblical, you know. But nonetheless, you know, calling the Lord, you know, and the, the kind of ask for me in my house, you know, kind of stuff. Well, those are all in the Bible, and yet the way she was presenting it is in the Bible also. And I think we need to kind of appreciate the full counsel of God when it comes to things like that. It made me think of Richard Wormbrand, who wrote Tortured for Christ, who had, you know, been obviously tortured for his faith. And I remember him; he had spoken at our church years ago, and I remember when he was sharing his testimony, he was talking about how he was evangelized the way a woman would have been courted, that, that the person seeking to win him to faith, it was almost like he felt like somebody was trying to date him. I mean, it was that type of, you know, there's a love and there's a call and are you going to come, you know, this type of thing. And I think that's an important thing for us not to lose as we're being catechized and as certainly we're studying this very weighty chapter that we're going to look at this morning in Revelation chapter 18. We're going to go again through the entire chapter, so it's verses 1 through 24 and just so you understand where we're at here, the, the bulls of wrath had been really uh, specifically addressed in chapter 16, and then in chapter 17, we see the kind of political overthrow of, and I would argue it was Rome, some people think it's Jerusalem, along with the victory of the Lamb over all of these foes. In this chapter, what we're looking at is kind of the response of the world to what's happening in terms of God's judgment of Rome. How is it affecting everybody else? And then we'll get into the more details of that. Again, Revelation 18, 1 through 24, hear now the word of God. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repaid her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow, and I will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning." standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, Every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that you, that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you will find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailor, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsmen of any craft shall be found in you anymore, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore for your merchants were the great men of the earth for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived and her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth thus far the reading of god's word let us pray father in heaven we read words like this it seems almost overwhelming We do pray, Father, that we know that you are the God who both establishes and deposes kings and kingdoms. We see this type of thing happening here in this chapter, and we do pray that we would recognize, that we would understand this morning what the message here is for us, what this tells us of you, and what this tells us in terms of your call in our lives and how we should respond to such things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very shortly after 9-11, I had some very close friends in New Zealand reach out to me. They wanted to know what was going on. Was the, was the United States losing its stability? Was, was this a genuine threat? Now, part of this correspondence was their concern for me personally. These are people who I, because I spent a great deal of time years ago down there, and they kind of considered themselves family, and they were concerned about me personally. But, but another part of all of this was something I have to say I was kind of surprised about. They felt, at some very significant level, that their security as a nation was bound to the security of America. I would not thought that way before. I mean, New Zealand is, I don't know, 8,000 miles away. It's a little country in the South Pacific with, you know, I think at the time 3 million people. But they, they felt that if America were to fall, they, New Zealand, would feel the effect. Now, at the writing of the Revelation... There was no nation in the recognized world that would not be affected by the downfall of Rome. What was going to happen to Rome would have an effect upon the entire recognized world at the time. And that is the feel of this current chapter under our meditation. The response of the world to the downfall of this empire that had been persecuting the people of God. What is this going to look like? We start off with this angel who has great authority, who seems to light up the entire land. So the angel comes down, and the entire land is lit. Now, I, that might be something that could be understood literally, but of course you realize in the Bible, light and dark kind of tell us something about the character It was a very dark era in Rome, and Rome preferred the darkness to the light. Jesus teaches about that. He taught of this natural hatred that we have of the light because the light exposes our deeds, that they are evil. But those who are in Christ as he taught, whose works have been carried out in God, needn't fear the light. I think it's an interesting thing. Jesus says it is our nature to hate the light, but there are certain people who needn't fear the light because the works have been carried out, their works have been carried out in God. Now, I just want to be quick to say that this is not based upon some innate goodness of that person. It's not as if some people are so good that the light doesn't bother them. No. This is due to the grace of God through faith in the light of Christ, who shines in our hearts. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The only reason the light wouldn't be disturbing is because the light of Christ is in your hearts. And I think, you you know, you look at a verse like this, and I was just looking at it as I was looking at this morning, yet another testimony to the, the monergistic grace of God. We don't shine the light in our own hearts. God shines His light in our hearts. Our salvation from beginning to end is the grace of God. So we recognize that. We see it over and over in the Bible. It is God who does this. It is not some cooperative effort. He's not giving us a flashlight and saying, the batteries are in it. Just aim it at your own heart and flip the switch. It's that easy. No, he's the one who does it. The picture at the opening of this chapter really is one of no place to hide. Think of a military operation where you have this more powerful army imposing what they call battlefield illumination, right? You, you have these, these flares that go up, and they're simply not a foxhole where the light doesn't shine. The, the light shines everywhere. Roman had been given ample time to come to the light, but they had repeatedly chose the darkness. You know, it can become very easy to live in darkness. Um, There's an ease, I guess, to the darkness. You know, know, we all look better in the dark. But we live in the darkness sometimes as if we think there'll be no day of reckoning. That there'll never come a time when God's going to kind of bring the light and shine it. But the scriptures teach just the opposite, Your sin will find you out. There comes a time when we will face the light. But there is a refuge. And the refuge is found in Christ. He is a very present help in trouble. And I will say this you know, I mean, I've been giving in this sermon series, focusing on one basic end times position. And um, you're welcome plenty of books in the Christian bookstore or on Amazon or any, to read the other positions. I don't, I'm not, I, that's not something I would ever discourage. I'm not going to hold an eschatological book burning. I do in my heart. <laughs> um, but, you know, feel free to do all that examination. But I will say this, regardless of your eschatological or end-time convictions... The revelation, like every other book in Scripture, continually directs us to Christ. His victory becomes our victory in darkness, and you needn't fear the light if you trust in the one who is the light. And though these events that we're reading of, I think, primarily speak to the events of the early church, there is this kind of cultural political, philosophical, theological cycle that really tends to repeat itself through history. It is a cycle of prosperity, depravity, captivity. This kind of happens. Now, again, you can ask me during Q&A after the 20-minute Westminster class how that works into my post-millennialism, and I think it does. Nonetheless, there is a cycle that takes place. Rome had become very prosperous, one of the most prosperous nations ever. But as we read here, it also had now started sliding down this road of depravity, right? We read like a dwelling place for demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. These are allusions to the Old Testament, this idea of unclean birds and what have you. Rome had been rich and now it was sliding, sliding, sliding down. And it had become so powerful that other nations were under its influence and under its dependence, which Rome no doubt used as a cudgel. It wasn't as if they weren't going to use that power to dominate. They weren't using that power to serve or be redemptive or create relief organizations that, what do they use their power for they use their power to get more power I recently watched uh, an interview with the president of of Kenya and I'm not a I'm not an apologist for Kenya so don't take this too far but he was being interviewed by a CNN reporter And just so you understand the context here, Kenya has not bought in yet to the whole LGBTQ agenda. They're they're kind of like, yeah, we don't, it's really not on our radar. We unthinkably believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman. And this CNN reporter, she just wasn't having it. And uh, she did everything she could in this interview to vilify this man for his country's lack of willingness to bow before the pressure of this gender expression. Now, I watched that interview, and then that interview would have followed up by a clip where a former U.S. president was using all of his political muscularity to maneuver Kenya into this progressive direction. Now, you you realize, I mean, I I I don't believe the United States is the kingdom of God, but I'm talking about the fact that I don't think Rome was the kingdom of God. I'm talking about the influence nations have that are powerful over other nations. And the fact that there is this threat that if you don't buy in to where our country is going in terms of our sliding down into depravity, don't expect our support. All this to say that when a nation gets powerful and it begins to slide into depravity, it wants company. And there is great pressure to get in line because, quote, the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. But another voice comes out of heaven, we hear, and this voice is the first call in the chapter, really, to the Christian, to those who are called and chosen and faithful. In light of this that's about to take place, what are you called to do? All right, you understand what's going on here. There's, there is a massive, dominant, powerful, military thing that's about to take place, and we are now observing it. What are we called to do? Well, again, we see a very common refrain throughout all of Scripture, and that here it's put, come out of her. The nation is going in a bad direction, this angel is teaching, and we need to not get on board with the direction the nation is taking. Their sins have reached heaven. What does that mean? It's the idea there, I mean, I mean this picture is the picture of God is about to respond to the sins of these people. Now, there are two things this voice of heaven gives in its exhortation. Two things. Number one, don't share in her sins. Secondly, beware lest you receive of her plagues. Now, I would, I would argue that in the first century context, this may very well have meant actually making a geographical switch in your location, in your residency. But friends, as you read this, the bottom line message here for any generation of Christian is that as your culture descends on the slide of darkness, don't go along for the ride. And are you wise enough, are you well catechized enough to know the difference? Do you know darkness when you see it? Do you know evil when you see it? How do you know you're not going along for the ride? I mean, Isaiah puts it very clearly. He says, what are those who call good evil and evil good? It's not as if, hey, we're doing evil, join us. We're no, we're redefining what evil is. We're redefining what good is. So if you want to do good, join us, even though the scriptures declare that it is evil. Do you know the difference? The judgment that Rome will suffer is due to its pouring out of, quote, the blood of the prophets and the saints. She lived luxuriously and sat as a queen. Rome sought the status of a god, right? All the Caesars wanted to be gods. Caesar is lord. And they used that status not to love or to redeem but to quench any and all that would threaten that power and that wealth. I hesitate to say this, you know, I mean, I, I, um, I don't want to sound, I mean, I think, you know, as far as nations go, the nation we live in is probably historically the best one ever. I don't think America is the kingdom of God, I think, so just to make that clear. But, I, I mean, I do think we live kind of in an exceptional country and I remember having a logic professor in seminary Ken Sample some of you would know that name who was a World War II buff I mean he really studied World War II and he made a comment one time you know with with all the foibles that any nation has and we have them as well but he made a comment one time about the aftermath of World War II because obviously we were criticized by people to this day for Hiroshima and Nagasaki and using the atomic weapon and and what have you right I mean, that's a big, and we, you know, we all have 20-20 hindsight on whether or not that was a good idea or a bad idea, but this, is, this was his point. At the end of World War II, we had one in the Pacific, and we had one in Europe, and we were the only nation on Earth that had an atomic bomb. And instead of using it to gather the spoils of the nations who had attacked us, we actually used our immense wealth to help rebuild the nations that attacked us. To me, that was a, that's a sign of a nation, at some point, that is governed by some type of godliness. That we're not going to be vindictive. We're not going to reattack, We're going to help. But Rome was not this way. They, they utilized all the power they had to just increase their own power. And what we're seeing now is God going, I am going to repay to you Double what you were doing in your quest for evil. And when we read that, this idea of it's going to be mixed double, that's an appeal to the Old Testament sanctions we read of in Jeremiah 16 and other places, that God is going to exercise the, this lex talionis, this law of retaliation. You behave this way, and now this is going to be how you'll suffer. So, we have seen in this chapter the call of the Christian to remain uninfluenced by the world. We now see three other responses in the chapter: a response by the kings, the merchants, and the shipmasters. and by the way, for those of you who are interested in doing a deep dive here, these are all you're you're reading things that in ezekiel twenty seven and twenty eight are almost word for word, you know I think there's you know, when we read of all the things, you know, like the, the oils and the bread the, the, and the wood, and, you know, I think there are 24 things listed here. And in, in Ezekiel, there's like 16. And those of you who really want to dig that deep can figure out which ones are here and which ones aren't and why. But we're not going to go into that kind of minute detail regarding the responses. It's enough for now for us to note that the kings the other kings who had benefited from Rome's wealth and lived luxuriously with her, are weeping. But they're not weeping in a healthy way, because you'll notice this. They're weeping, but they're not doing anything about it. And one of the things we see three times here with these three responses of the kings and the merchants and the shipmasters is that they are standing at a distance. Such is the nature of an ungodly relationship. I've often thought, who in this church, if I went completely south, right, and I, and I was living under the Redondo Pier, who, when I woke up one morning, would I see kind of crawling under the pier to go, what in the world are you doing like, who, who would that person be? Or are, are, are would people kind of go, like, I, I knew he was kind of sick from the beginning. This just, just kind of validates my suspicions. You know? It is the nature of ungodly relationships to go, you're having a rough time? I hope it works out for you. You know, be warm and feel filled, you know. Now, of course, we can't have a without me engaging in a movie reference, and so I'm going to give you one here. I've, I was told in our elders' retreat I've got to refer to movies not to 80s and newer. <laughs> this is from the 60s. I'm a, re- I'm a rebel, what can I say? But my, my favorite movie growing up was a movie called Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman, and, I, and intentional or not, the movie was a Christian allegory. You know, people kind of like, oh, you're making that happen. And uh, I have to say this, you know, I will say this because I came up with that. I'm like, this movie is a Christian allegory. And everybody's like, you like the movie and you're forcing it into Christian allegory until I heard RC Sproul say the exact same thing. <laughs> you have the mic right there. But there's one portion in this movie where, um, you know, just so you understand, you know, Luke is kind of in prison for almost nothing. You're ripping the heads off of parking meters, right? But he's in like in a chain gang all of a sudden now for having done something almost, uh, you know, inane. And then for some reason, he's in with this lost group of confused inmates who, during the course of the movie, begin to admire him. Like he wins their affection. He, he becomes the guy. But then, at a certain point in the movie, he tries to escape and he fails and he's brought back and he's tortured and he, he appears to have broken, right? They, it was like Luke can't be broken. They broke him. And there's a scene where he's, after he's broken, he's brought back into the, to the cell block with all of his former fans in the room, and they just all turn their back on him. And I remember the scene. It was, it's kind of a touching scene. He, he's laying there all beat up, and he lifts his hand for somebody to help him off the floor, and nobody will lift his hand. And, and the, the line from the movie is simply this. Where are you now? Something you might want to consider when you pick your friends. Something you might want to consider when you consider what type of friend you are. You know, we, we tend to pick people who work for us. And heaven forbid we allow this to paint the picture of our faith in Christ. Right? Did not that happen, right? Strike the shepherd. And what happens? The sheep will scatter. But things changed when he was raised up. And we now serve a living Savior. Well, that's the kings. The kings are standing at a distance. Now the merchants, they're no better. They had become rich by Rome. But their cash cow is now being slaughtered, similar to the kings. They stand at a distance. And there's a great deal that I'm not going to share with you in terms of the long list of products that we read, right? This chapter has a long list of products. And so, you know, I felt the responsibility to do some research on that. And then I just decided to leave it on the cutting room floor, other than a couple of things. And that is to recognize the ostentatious nature of the cravings of the Romans. I you mean, know, all these things that they list there—it's telling you about how lavish things were for these people. You know, things like an appetite for peacock's brains is one thing. You know, very rare nightingales' tongues—the the idea that the. The, the generals, you know, needed to eat off of silver plates. One Caesar had a budget for one year for food, of tw- you know, translated to today, $20 million just for food. So it's that type of, like, lavish culture that they're writing about. But I stopped. There's one phrase I do want to dig into a little here because I think it stands out in terms of the merchandise, it's listed in the merchandise, and it is, quote, the bodies and souls of men. This was very likely a reference to the slave trade, and Rome had in the direction of 60 million slaves, but as slaves, they were reduced to products. They were part of the merchandise. There was no recognition of them being made in the image of God. Let me tell you, when, when a people decide they are no longer going to regard that people are made in the image of God, they tend to depersonalize, dehumanize. And when you depersonalize or dehumanize, then the doors are open for anything. Whether it's abortion or euthanasia and these types of things where we're telling people almost from day one, rather than suffer, you have a clear option of dying and facilitating that. The scriptures aren't unclear that those who hate God love death. Death becomes like this viable option when you remove the nature of the image of God. By the way, even from unregenerate, even from the non-Christian person is still made in the image of God and should be regarded as such. But that wasn't the case here. That's, what, that's the environment that we're reading about here. And I think man's inhumanity to man is a great testimony to this. And the idea that, you know, un-Christian leaders are going to rule equitably based upon the fact that they have access to general revelation, what have you, I think is, a, is an unbiblical fantasy. I think people who reject the gospel will find that their cultures, their societies, their governments will get worse and worse and worse. Finally, we have the shipmasters, and similar to the kings and the merchants, they also stand at a distance. And again, not to get too far into this, but simply understood, they're the ones delivering the goods. But the docks are closed, and almost immediately, the supplies dry up. Remember, we saw that a little bit in, uh, during COVID, right? You Started going to the grocery store. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a fussy, 21st century, first world person. I, I often won't worry about where I have things stored, you know, like a tool, because I can go to Woods Hardware and just buy one. Like I, I know where it is at the hardware store, but it's somewhere under my house. Just this last week, our house got TP'd take that as a sign of affection. But we walked, we're walking, we're like, the house got deep TP and there's like six rolls of toilet paper that are, that are still like half full on the grass. And I'm thinking, <laughs> but we saw in a very industrialized nation how quickly the shelves could get empty and uh, and so that's what's happening here. They're kind of going, look at, it's all drying up. So all of this great evil is happening because of the great evil of Rome. And then we see this verse in chapter twenty, or in verse twenty, that almost doesn't fit. It's like its own thing. We, like in the beginning, we saw how are Christians to respond? Come out! Don't be part of it. How did the kings respond? How do the merchants respond? How do the shipmasters respond? In the very end, we're going to see what did, what did it look like within Rome itself. But then we see this one verse, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets. So it's this kind of general call to rejoice, both in heaven and on earth. For God has avenged you on her. So in light of this chapter, which I'm going to be honest with you, was kind of hard for me to read. It's it's hard for me to read in a room like this where I'm thinking, what does everybody think of these austere words? But right here toward the end of the chapter, we're told rejoice. Rejoice over what you're reading. It seems a little counterintuitive to rejoice over the devastations. But I will say this, it is generally only in a setting where the Christian faith is viewed as some sort of psychological, emotional health spa that the call to rejoice when God judges the wicked becomes offensive. When when your understanding of your faith is as if God is your personal life coach and you're having a hard day and he's going to make the day a little easier. You know, when, if your understanding of the Christian faith is limited to that type of thinking, it becomes hard to go, I'm going to worship God when a nation crumbles. Those two things don't comport well with our psychology. Yet at the same time, for those who have lived up close and personal against the face of wickedness, they find it much easier to rejoice when that wickedness is toppled. This type of rejoicing is all pervasive through the Old Testament. We see it all the time in the Old Testament. Where wicked nations, which sometimes the Bible says, reach their fullness. The sin of the Amorites had not reached its fullness. The reason that the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years, we're told in Genesis, way before that even happens is because the wickedness of the Amorites had not reached its fullness. God was going, I'm going to time this just perfectly. And when they get as evil as they could possibly be, then I'm going to deliver you, and then I'm going to judge them. But I dare say none of us have experienced a nation that has reached the fullness of its iniquity. I'm guessing it's a pretty ugly picture. And so when we see that type of thing in the Old Testament... And these nations, as wicked as they are, finally deposed by God, it makes sense for the people of God to rejoice over the end of such a dark nation. Um, The the only thing we could probably think of in the 20th century would be the Nazis, right? The Nazis were a convenient enemy in almost every movie made after 1945 because everybody knew they were wrong. But if you start reading in the Old Testament... The nations surrounding Israel made the Nazis look like Mr. Rogers. This, you talk about just wicked, wicked people. And so it made sense that the people of God would rejoice. We see this a little bit through the course of church history. If, we read, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs or the Heroes of the Reformation, during the Reformation you had the Spanish Inquisition, Tomás de Torquemada, and the burning of Christians and what have you, and the rejoicing of when those wicked people lost their power to do the great wickedness that they were doing. And we see it even today in nations throughout the world who are continually governed by dark leaders. Friends, to be sure, we should prefer repentance. And I don't think we should have an unhealthy, vindictive disposition toward those who engage in wickedness. Right? We shouldn't be kind of vindictive or malicious about it. At the same time, we need to understand this. Justice is a glorious attribute of God. It's not something to be embarrassed about. And when he exercises justice in his judgment of the wicked, he is to be praised for that. I think we get a Very small taste of that when we see miscarriages of justice in our own society and how destructive that can be. Today's courtroom, I think, has become in many ways a bit of a sideshow, right? We have these daytime TV courtroom shows that are just a joke. Psalm 94 tells us that the unjust judges are an exaltation of wickedness. This can be especially heartbreaking to those who've lost loved ones at the hands of those who've escaped justice. Somebody who deserves justice and they don't get it and they go out and they kill again and we're scratching our heads going, what is going on here? Our courtrooms have become a mockery. Our justice system has become a mockery and yet God's Justice will not be mocked. It may grind slowly, as someone once said, but it grinds to powder. There comes a time when God intervenes in such a way as to halt this destructiveness. And this is what the early church was told was going to happen. God is, he is, this evil has reached heaven. God is coming in, he's intervening. And this is the continual answer to the prayer that we read of in chapter 6, verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord God, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? All of this is God answering the prayer of those who have been martyred. All right, so let me finish up here. What we've seen so far is for Christians to come out of this darkness. We've seen the kings and the merchants and the shipmasters and how they'll respond. And then the chapter ends with this idea of kind of what's happening within. So the mighty angel throws a millstone. We get to this end of the chapter and he takes a big millstone and he throws it in the sea. It's a very dramatic expression there. And, uh, you know, Jesus talked about a millstone, right? If you lead any of these little ones to sin, better for you that a millstone be tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. But here... John is almost quoting verbatim Jeremiah 51 in the judgment of Babylon, where God is saying, write these things, say these things, it's on the millstone, and then take it and throw it into the sea. It's very violent. It's very kind of terminal in terms of its power. Rome was coming to an end in terms of its ability to persecute, and somehow stall the advancement of the kingdom of God. It's about to be, quote, thrown down. And the reference here to the end of harpists and musicians and craftsmen and brides and grooms all speak to the end of a thriving yet ungodly civilization. Now, I'm no prophet. And I try to avoid prognostications. At the same time, there's no book in the Bible, written specifically or prophetically about the 21st century. Again, we don't have a book in the Bible entitled uh, Paul to Branch of Hope, right? We are called to be observant. We are called to be wise. We are called to read the Bible and then kind of look at our own world and go, "At at what level is this happening Now? We have to make assessments, preferably before the fire that's at our feet is over our heads. Augustine did this. Augustine made very profound assessments of his era. He wasn't ignorant of what was going on in the 5th century. John Calvin did the same thing in the 16th century. He knew what was going on in his era and wrote in detail about it. More recently, people like Francis Schaeffer, and I would even argue Greg Bonson, who we're having a conference named after, were modern teachers who I think had a read on their era that we might learn how to engage without being influenced. But friends, in all of this, we have to recognize this, that God has a plan for history. He has declared the end from the beginning. And the reason he wants us to know that is because as that same passage teaches, we are to remember this. We are to remember that God has a plan from the end to the beginning, and we are called to stand firm. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would stand firm, and I pray for myself. I pray for all who would hear this message, that we would be able to make proper assessments of the direction of our culture, the direction of our civilization, the direction of our churches, the direction of our, of our nation, and that, Father, in this, that we would pray and work toward that which is true. And we pray, Father, that in all of this, we would not lose sight of the fact that it is Christ, the Lamb of God, who grants this victory. And we do pray, Father, that, that his light would ever burn brightly in our hearts, we pray in his name. Amen.